Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. My guest for this week's episode is Eddie Brill. Eddie worked as the warm-up comedian for The Late Show with David Letterman for 17 years and as talent coordinator for the show for 11 of those years. Eddie has performed stand-up in 46 of the 50 states, is an actor and a writer for TV and movies, and has coached many comedians to help them get to the funny quicker. Eddie has a great podcast called The Break, where he talks with comedians on how they got their big break. I've caught a few episodes, and we'll definitely listen to the rest. There's some good ones. Jim Gaffigan, Susie Essmans, just great episodes there. Eddie and I talked about how he started in stand-up, what he looked for in comedians for the late show and how he coached them to give their best five minutes for the show. This is a good one. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Now, if this is your first listen to Behind the Bits, thank you for giving it a shot. My aim is to give you the behind the scenes info on how comedians turn funny thoughts into jokes and how they turn jokes into a career. In 95 interviews, I haven't had one comedian tell me it was easy. And I hope the nuggets of knowledge I get from these comedians like Eddie help you to either make it in the comedy biz or at least know the work that goes behind a five minute spot on a late night TV show. You know what else is difficult? Podcasting. Podcasting is difficult. So many hours of preparation, editing, finding guests, and promoting go into every hour I put out there. So if you like what you hear, subscribe to the show, give it a review, and share it with your friends. That's the best way to show your appreciation for great guests like Eddie. Thanks for listening, and follow all my social medias from the Behind the Bits website, which is the btbpc.com. I told Eddie that I'm going to change up my my intros a little bit and just bring him up and start talking to him because I just fuck up intros all the time. So I'm just going to do it right. So let's bring him out right now. I'm going to put you over here. Eddie, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. And you already said the fuck. So you already let me know that. uh, Yeah. My, I don't have to ask that question. It's funny. I'm a clean comic, but in real life, I cuss like a sailor. So (laughs) there you go. You could tell you're mostly clean because instead of curse, you said cuss. Yeah, yeah. You know, like cuss is a very polite way. Like, yes, it is. I'm going to curse, but I'm not going to curse that bad. I'm just going to cuss. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and just fucking deal with it, okay? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm pretty much the same way. When I was first doing stand-up, I was very clean uh, with what I did. When I first started having an idea of what I wanted to do, I was as clean as possible Mm -hmm. because I knew that would get me a lot of work and I could get the laughs. And somebody taught me uh, a lesson early on, very early on. I was doing a Charlie Brown's teacher bit that everyone in my generation had done about one, 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 one. And one of the lines in it I wrote, I had a fucking trombone for a teacher out of context but i would say that line Uh and it would get a big laugh Uh and a really great comedian named jimmy tingle from boston still at it still brilliant 
he told me, he says, why are you saying fucking trombone? Just say, I have a trombone for a teacher. And that's really funny. You mm -hmm. don't need to use fuck as an adjective. Mm -hmm. So I said, I don't know about that. He goes, no, trust me. I, I'm telling you, it's a great joke. And it wasn't a great joke, but it was a joke that was going to get laughs with that way. So I went and I said, I got a trombone for a teacher. Not the same laughs. I did it again. No laughs. So I went back to fucking trombone. Big laughs. Yeah. So yeah. I called Jimmy on the phone and I said, I don't, I can't agree with you there. I tried it. I gave it my all. He said, the problem is not the words. He said, it's the expression. You could say fucking without using the word by doing that with your nonverbal skills. By going, I got a trombone for a teacher. Right, right. And, I, got, and then I ended up getting the same laughs as without saying fucking because I was able to use layers as opposed to just words. I was able to use expressions as well. Uh -huh. And it was a big early lesson to to realize that there, there are layers to performance levels. There's words are only one form of communication. But the most important part of most stand-up comics, not the only part, is the nonverbal communication skills, the pausing, the being comfortable in the silence, mm -hmm. all of that kind of stuff. There's a joke and then there's a performance, and those are two really different things. And so you're a writer, a director, and an actor all at the same time up there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, and it's funny because at this time of life, I'm sorry for cutting you off, but that's right. you mentioned that this there's a, a company called word collections and co companies are have been paying comedians to run these platforms or paying comedians to run their material but they're only paying for the the performance and not for the words mm -hmm. in music you pay if dolly parton sings writes a song for whitney houston they're each getting paid for their part the comedian's supposed to get paid for both and all this time we haven't gotten it and now we're trying to collect that money that's due that and there's laws there are laws that the that have been broken right. by these companies who refuse to pay the comedians what is really theirs that that's a fantastic thing to happen because it's your art your the, the things that you write is so important and these days it's so easy to steal it first of all i mean you somebody posts their set on youtube that they did for an open mic and somebody takes a joke from that and makes it their own across country and you don't know it until all of a sudden they're a headliner and they're using your joke and uh, yeah on a slight kind of the same subject but slightly different did you hear about the spotify thing where that's they the were, one yeah that's, okay that's it okay yeah if i think you know, spotify I, has used all of these comedians and when they were called to the carpet, they pulled the comedians from from Spotify mm -hmm. because they got caught breaking the law. Yeah. And so, I am so, so now, I'm yeah. so glad that you're bringing that up because I went on a, a week long rant against Spotify. Not the other thing this uncovers is they don't pay their artists. enough. Right. And so they are the biggest. They're making the most money. And yet they are at like three hundredths of a cent uh per play and that's it's just really it's ridiculous when you look at everybody else i actually canceled my spotify subscription and subscribed to title t-i-d-a-l which is a better it's got better audio quality but the big thing is they pay their artists three times as much 
as the uh, as Spotify does. And right. Someone said something, and I don't, I can't quote it exactly. These wealthy conglomerates, the, the only way someone can be that wealthy is if you're a criminal. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in these situations. It's cr- it's criminal what they have done. And but at the same, there was a company called Audium, and they were able to collect the money for the musicians mm-hmm. who were getting screwed. And the same people from Audium have started this Word Collections. So if you go to wordcollections.com, you could find that and join in. And and the people who have joined us are not only great comedians who are alive. But the estate of George Carlin, the estate of Richard Pryor, mm-hmm. on and on, Bill Hicks, and then Comics Were Alive, Margaret Cho, and, and Stephen. It's a long list. Mm-hmm. And so if you go to Word Connections, you'll find that. There's another company doing it as well, and they're really nice people, and they have comics best interest in mind. But they're, they didn't invent the, the mechanism to, to figure this out. Uh, word collections has mm. so if you go to wordcollections.com you can even sign up and be one of the people if you've had anything on any of the platforms there's money that that's yours that is going to have to go to the courts and fight and there's no there's nothing they can do about it because it's the law right yeah 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 that's great and have you been like a part of that where you help them help them find the broken laws or no i'm not i'm a i couldn't tell you a law from i could spell lawyer yeah that's a hard word well, that's a good one spell. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a w and a y next to each other but the i was mostly looking out my manager's husband is just all good people of course and they he was really good friends with this guy with word collection so that we connected and i just alerted my friends mm-hmm. look we're getting screwed and uh and we don't want to cause any harm. We just want to get what's coming to us and then be, continue to have relationships with these people. So the same people from Audium are running word collections and they're even doing spoken word stuff like they're representing Muhammad Ali's estate, mm-hmm. Dick Gregory, people have passed whose families rely on this money that's not coming in. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, it, like I said, there's another company doing it as well. They're, they have really great comedians. They're really nice folks. Mm. We're, we're, we want to do the same thing for everybody. But I think there's a little bit more money on the word collections because you don't have to go through another company in order to break down the money in that. Right. And it's good that comedians are actually getting some sort of uh, support and a little bit of a leg up for once. <laughs> Yeah, comedians look out for each other. It's a a small amount of people who, in any business, that are scumbags and that kind of a thing. And in comedy, there's there's always a way to take advantage of people. And if there's a way to do it, people will take advantage. It's just human nature. If you could save a dollar on your taxes, you're not going to go, ah, nah, I'm going to be more honest. Right. You know, know, it's just (laughs) human nature is to really get the best you possibly can out of whatever you're doing. Yeah. But then there gets to a point where it's just over the top and you have to care about people, especially my material, your material, whoever, whatever comedian, that's your baby. Uh-huh. And if someone steals your baby, it's, and I've had that a lot. I've had comedians do my stuff on The Tonight Show and other shows, and I've had comedians sell my material to famous comedians, and there's it's very hard. There's a lot, very little you can do except, just know that you wrote these incredible pieces that that interested comics that you respected. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> and I watched a lot of your tape 
before the interview, and your stuff is universal enough that it could be made into somebody else's joke. And that's hard because you're, when you're doing observations and things like that, it doesn't take a whole lot to put that in somebody else's persona. And Yeah, and, and, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. Again, I'm interrupting you. I'm sorry. Is no one had my grandmother, so the story about right. my grandmother, whether yeah. they, you know, rep- repeated or whatever. But I'll give you the example. I I wrote a bit a million years ago, nineteen eighty five or four, uh-huh. and maybe even earlier than that, because I had done comedy in college and then I quit. And I was about how can you have a word like nonchalant when there's no such word as chalant? And I would do the act out, uh-huh. and I was pretty much my hero was George Carlin, so I was like. My rhythms were George. How can you have a word like nonchalant? Well, there's no such word come as chalant. Like, Ray, be like me, nonchalant. That was the rhythm. So I had done it on television in my first ever television appearance in 1986. And someone came up to me and said, I saw you do George Carlin's joke on, on uh, Star Search. And I, first of all, I love George Carlin. I've never heard him do that routine. They go, I saw him live and he did that joke. So, of course, I took it out of my act and do it because I, he's my hero. And I definitely wrote it myself. And I, the rhythms were George Carlin, but it was my joke. So years later, I was at the working with Robert Schimmel at the Bally's in Las Vegas. And George Carlin was in the big room. And I saw him out on the casino floor working the, the, the machines. And mm-hmm. I went up to him when he was done. And I said, hi, comedian. And you're my hero. And that's why I'm doing comedy. And I wrote a joke. And I just want you to know that I wrote it. And I did it on television. And once I heard you did it, I took it out of my set. And he goes, let me tell you this. First of all, you're smart to take it out of your set, because people are going to think you're a thief stealing from me. That And you don't deserve that. Because I didn't write that joke. Someone gave me that joke and told me about it. And I loved it. And I put it in my act. Uh... And he goes, so can I shake the hand of the guy who wrote that fantastic joke? And uh, so that was really sweet that happened. And then I got to be close with him and I knew his family. And when he died in 2008, his daughter told me, you should do that joke. You should go. You should put that back in your act. Just just honor him in, in that way. And I don't really do it very often, but once in a while I'll do that. But it turned out to be really nice because he loved the joke enough to use it Mm -hmm. in his act on stage. And I was, and so I got to be friends with him because he realized that I was a good joke writer and that kind of a thing, or as good of a joke writer at that moment that I could have been. That's great. Now, with your friendship with Carlin, what advice did he give you, or what nuggets of wisdom did he give you that just stuck with you for the rest of your career? A bunch of things. My favorite one is about perspective. He says, when you're talking about a subject, if you give people your perspective, they can't argue it. Mm -hmm. They might not agree with it, but if you give your perspective, that's your perspective, and they can't argue Mm -hmm. uh, with it. They might not like it. It might turn them off. It might freak them out, but they can't argue with you. Mm -hmm. If it's truly your perspective, then, then that's what you should adhere to. And like... Yes, different people have different perspectives. Right. Like he's, I, and one of the best compliments I ever got was in Boise, Idaho. And I have to say Boise because they get mad <laughs> if you don't pronounce the S in the hard way. And I go, we don't say New Jersey, but that's, that's a whole other thing. And I was in Boise and I was performing in the crowds, a lot of Mormons. And I did some religious material, which I talked to Carlin about. And he said, just do it as long as your perspective kind of thing. Uh-huh. And these four Mormon women came up to me after the show. 
And they said, look, we didn't agree with your take on religion, but we respected the way you did it. Uh-huh. And that's one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my life because I took these people who totally opposite of the way I think, or not totally, pretty much opposite of what the way I think, and di- weren't pissed at me for right. for sharing my perspective. And they were open enough to realize, look, we can't, we're not thinking alike, but at least you were classy enough to not take the easy way out and just shit on something you weren't familiar with. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. You can put that perspective forth without shitting on the people who have the different perspective. It's just, but it's, it is delicate. It's a really fine line between presenting something as your perspective. Okay. I'm a Buddhist, so I don't believe in the whole Mormon thing, but here's some similarities between them. And I I don't have a joke here, but here's the similarities. We're not that far apart, but, and make it so it's play more playful than damning of somebody's religion. And yeah, I get that, but it is a fine line. And I find even in my, you know, PG 13 stuff, I have found myself crossing a line and been checked for it. I've, I, I've got a joke that I thought I was doing it wrong. And I, the punchline of the joke is, I guess I'm my wife's gay roommate because I, I talk about the fact that I don't like sports and cars and stuff like that, but I like to watch say yes to the dress and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I thought that by saying that I was my wife's gay roommate, I thought that might be offensive. So I changed it to, oh, I'm gay. And I had a gay friend tell me, hey, that ain't right. <laughs> you right. just took a good joke and screwed it up. And, right, uh, because it, what you're saying is no gay people like sports. Right, yeah. And, and that and that kind of thing. And so you're making a statement. Now, if it was your perspective and you said, I grew up in this household where we didn't really understand gay marriage or we didn't under, we were Bible thumpers and mm-hmm. this is how we lived our lives. And when the, and then when I realized what gay was, if it comes from a certain place right. and we understand that it's a different story, but then it becomes a lecture instead of a comedy right. joke. And yep. you're really just trying to get a laugh here and it's important, but yeah, I've learned the vulnerability is the strength as opposed to what we were taught as young men, mm-hmm. that vulnerability means you're weak and that macho means you're strong. But the reality is it's the complete opposite. Right. Mach- machismo or whatever, that's a sign of insecurity. That's someone going, they're afraid to go deep down. So they use force or anger or whatever to sh- show up their insecurity. Mm-hmm. And some people like doing that. And some people are attracted to that and, good for them and all that stuff but the more vulnerable you are you look at the thread of all the greatest comedians of all time and they all had a thread of vulnerability mm-hmm. not everyone but 90 percent of them oh, yeah. did carlin Pryor, tomlin they all it, but i like i saw someone on the tonight show recently i don't know if the show was recent but i saw recently a video of someone on the fallon show who did a set and there was no vulnerability everybody sucked but that but the comedian Mm -hmm. and it's not compelling. There's nothing compelling about that. You can have this bravado, but it's every once in a while, knock you on your ass Mm -hmm. because that's more human and it's more compelling and it's richer and deeper. Now, look, there's room for people who are not compelling. There are room for people who are, who go out there and everybody sucks, but them. But if you look at the staying power of the greatest comedians in the world and the most revered comedians in the world, they have that, vulnerability as their strength. Uh-huh. And 
I think a good example of that would be like a Lewis Black. Okay, so in on the face of it, it's everybody's wrong but him, but he does plenty of stuff in between saying how fucked up he is. Yeah. And, and it's it, he really and it, he really strikes a balance between saying how fucked up the world is and how he doesn't know if he should eat, eat an egg or not, things like that. So it, he really makes he really makes himself out to be a very angry, sympathetic character. And that's hard to do. Yeah, yeah, Bill Burr is very good at yeah, that. Yeah, Bill Burr is very brilliant good. Yeah. at really, I agree with 99% of the things he says. Yeah. And sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to understand the perspective, but he's just so smart and so great at it. Mm -hmm. And then, but every once in a while, it'll come back and bite him in the ass. And it just makes him that much more superior to me as a great stand-up comedian. You look at Jonathan Winters. He always was these characters, but it always would eventually come back and be like, whoops, whoopsie. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, <laughs> it, it was it really, it was a different time too. Another thing Carlin taught me was to understand when you have, say I want to talk about gay marriage, uh -huh. for instance. I have my feeling about gay marriage that it should exist and there shouldn't be a question. If love is love and if you love somebody, who's to tell you you can't do that or you can't love that? And mm -hmm. it doesn't make any sense any other way. It's just, I understand people have been brainwashed into thinking that there's negativity there but that only comes from insecurity and really great marketing skills mm -hmm. you can market your insecurity to other people and let them join that insecurity bus where they don't understand uh, gay marriage so what i did was i made a list on of all the reasons why i believe that gay marriage is totally okay there shouldn't be an argument it's we have civil rights leaders it's like, why would we need a civil rights leader? Why isn't civil rights? <laughs> who needs a leader for civil rights? Yeah. It should be just natural. Uh -huh. Same thing with gay marriage. So I wrote all the reasons on one side of the page why I believe that it's ridiculous uh, that there's an argument. And then I wrote all the arguments that I've been hearing from people along the way. Uh -huh. And what I was able to do was cross-reference like I wanted to make a joke making fun of the way other people think. Uh, so uh, the joke was, look, I, I think a, a lot of people are afraid of gay people and they're, the power that they have uh, over them, that this supposed power over them. And uh, they think that they don't let gay people get married. They'll disappear. Mm -hmm. And I go and then the line I stole from the other side, I go and acting like it was my words. And I said, now, people don't realize this, but gay people have been around for 50, 60 years. So the joke comes off of their stupidity or ignorance to the truth. Yeah. It's shoving it back in their face in the sarcastic way to do that is to make them realize that this argument is really a waste of time and really against nature and life. And worry. there's so many other things you could worry about. Yeah, yeah. That's really good. And yet you did it in a way that was not in your face saying, hey, you gay marriage bashers are stupid. Right. You let them draw that conclusion themselves. Because it's their, it's their words. Yeah. I'm only repeating their words. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, that's great. So thinking about, you said you had your first TV spot in 86. Is that right? I did Star Search. I've, I've done all kinds of things, but I think the first network television thing I did was in October of 86 and it aired in January of 87, I think. Okay. So 
let's talk about when you started and what it took to get to that particular performance. You comics what, what non-comedians don't understand is what the journey is like going from that first time you got up on stage to when you're doing the tv spot or you get to work with letterman for 17 years and stuff like that <laughs> so what what was a brief synopsis of where did you start and how did it get you to that tv spot I started in college, and the first friends I met were very funny, and we formed a comedy group. Mm-hmm. It was mostly improv and sketch, and it was wildly successful, wildly successful. We, were, we couldn't believe how successful it was, and mm-hmm. we felt like rock stars. Excuse me. It was the late 70s in Boston at Emerson College, and yeah, I could name drop the list to you of all the people who were there just before us and over there during the time I was there and then after. And the college really turned out incredible comedians, including Dennis Leary, Bill Burr, Jen Kirkman, Stephen Wright, and then back at Jay Leno and Andrea Martin and then Jennifer Coolidge. And I can go on and uh-huh. on, you know, Laura Keitlinger and Lauren Dombrowski and uh, just Mario Cantone. And it's just, it was a very good place for us to do some stuff. Stephen Wright was doing a little stand-up and we decided to do a little stand-up too, just because they were all our friends. There was uh, comics in Boston who were just, it was incredible, s- small scene, but it was powerful because there was a lot of really good local Barry Crimmins and Don Gavin and these people in Boston who were just these brilliant minds who were also silly and really fun. And I did it a little bit and it, some were good and some were awful and it was just the beginning. And I liked it. I had improv and sketch background now. So I was able to, pull it off on stage despite nervousness. But then I just decided I was going to quit and do something different. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. And I moved back to New York where I'm originally from. And I took me a few years to situation came up to run a comedy club in the city. And I said, I wasn't going to. And then I said, yes, because I didn't really like the job that I had at the time. It was a nondescript job with horrible hours and it was just about making money and there was no life yeah and i missed and all my friends were starting to do pretty well for themselves in comedy so i i started again in 84 in july and the one of the first people i met was colin quinn and colin helped me run the place and we were bringing in all our friends who were comics uh, Stephen wright mario cantone and then the yorkers judy gold Susie essman adam sandler was going to nyu at the time he was down the street from the club so we started a little, we had a nice little club and it just by bringing the best comics in the world into that place, we were starting to bring in people who were stars at that time to come in and they weren't big stars yet, but they were as good as like Brett Butler and John Stewart. And like I said, Adam Sandler and people like that would come in and it just forces you to get better and better at what you do. Mm-hmm. Um I wasn't a great comedian. I was a good performer, and I performed the hell out of my really mediocre material. Uh And that got me Star Search. Now, I didn't win at Star Search. My friend Sue Kalinske was much sharper than I was and pulled it off in a way that was she deserved to win that thing. But it got me out to L.A. Uh So I decided, because I'm a workaholic, I decided I was going to just go on Star Search and lose and leave. I was going to go to the big clubs and try to get on. Uh-huh. So I went to the improv and they loved me. And they said, we, if you move here, we'll get you on all the time. 
I went to the comedy store. They said, look, you were great and we want to make you a regular and you don't have to live here. Whenever you come here, you go on. And that, so that turned out I started working at the comedy store. Mm-hmm. And I, Mitzi Shore, who ran the comedy store, Pauly Shore's mother, mm-hmm. um, put me up at the house behind the comedy club. I didn't have a place to live. And I, the comedy store was my living room. Mm-hmm. So every night, without fail, I was at the comedy store, either going on or watching somebody else. But mm-hmm. I was always around. And my roommate behind the thing was one of the guys who was in charge of the box office. So if one of the comics didn't show up or was late, he'd call me, get over here. I'm going to put you on. Mm-hmm. So I, I would average like 15 to 20 spots a week. Wow. And work with Kinnison and all the great Roseanne Barr and all the great comics at the time, Richard Pryor, all these people coming in. So I had a classroom as my living room. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these comics took their time, especially Kinnison and Robert Schimmel and all these other comics. They were John Mendoza, I can long list. And they took the time to help me uh, by just, you know, telling me what I was doing was right offering ideas like that so it really took years and years so i started say in in college in like 76 77 and here i am it's 1987 i'm in la and 10 years later and i'm not i did star search that was pretty much it Mm -hmm. and that was i was thankful but i didn't have this career i ended up having a career because i was at the comedy store every night and anything you have to be there all you have to love it. you have to marry it mm-hmm. you have to love it you have to nurture it yeah david brenner told me those things that you got to be married to it and you got to nurture it and you got to love it and you got to and also take chances and have fun and i was so you really learn there's so many great comedians who spend their lives helping other great comedians or young comedians i'm sorry great comics helping young comics and yeah. and i think that's so important and I, i'll never forget every day how thankful I am to have these people. So your original question was to try to show people it doesn't happen overnight. Mm-hmm. You can have, it's better to have the experience of doing comedy in different scenarios than just be successful at one thing early and then fade out. Mm-hmm. I, went to, I went to England in 1989 and that changed my whole life because first of all, the comedy scene was tighter, a smaller place, London, mm-hmm. And there was no pandering. And I didn't realize <laughs> until I went to Europe how much American comics, including myself, pandered. We got yeah. applause off the backs of things that we didn't do. Like, yeah. you give yourselves a round of applause for coming out tonight. Think about that. <laughs> Why would you applaud going out tonight? Yeah. I've gone out before. I don't need to applaud myself. Hey, let's hear it for the troops. Fuck you. Why are you using the troops to get an applause break? You're not the troops. They work. They put their life on the line and you're using their glory to get an applause break at a comedy club when you should be not looking for an applause break, but trying to get a laugh. Yeah. With a very clever joke that you've written. Right. So England really made a difference. And then England, my friends in England now, the new friends I had because I would go in there all the time, they turned me on to Ireland, which is a storytelling country. Mm. And it's amazing how great it is to do comedy in Ireland. And then they turned me on to Amsterdam and Paris, and then they connected me with Hong Kong. And now I'm working all these different countries, Bangladesh, where English is their second language. And it just forced me to t- keep taking things to a new level. And I still hadn't been 
at Letterman yet before I had done all these other things. Mm-hmm. And luckily, I I got warm up gigs in L.A. just to pay the bills. Mm-hmm. I worked. I did Save by the Bell was my first warm up gig that I got. Oh, okay. Um, I, I warmed up the Dana Carvey show in New York, which was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Too smart for American television. And then Louis C.K. was one of the the head producers, writers over at the Dana Carvey show. And he was now working at Letterman and Letterman was looking for a new warm-up comic and Louis recommended me. And that's how I got the job. That's, that's, that's so cool. Now in watching your tape, you mentioned being nervous at one point, but in watching your tape, you look like the most comfortable person on stage of just most comedians that I watch. It just seems like you don't have any anxiety over performing at all is that some is that something that you've worked towards to get to that uh happy place where you're not so nervous before you go up that you screw everything up or how did you get there for me it was stage time you you, Mm -hmm. that's the only real teacher i run workshops all over the world helping comics being each other's eyes and ears Mm -hmm. and it's really very productive but i would never say i'm teaching stand-up comedy Mm -hmm. because you can't teach stand-up comedy right you can't get it in a book there's one person who has a book about stand-up comedy and here's the A, put A in slot B and get C and all this kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. that's fine. But mm-hmm. now you're going to have 10,000 comics doing slot A, slot B turns into slot C. Yeah. Really, as a comedian, you just got to have stage time. The more stage time. There's a great quote that, from Michelangelo and they asked him, how did you make the statue of David, that perfect statue out of that block of marble and he said i just chipped away at the pieces that weren't him Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is amazing yeah so as comics the best comics not all comics because there are comics who are characters and comics who are very successful at doing different other things but the comics that i love and the ones that i want to watch the ones i want the one i want to be is someone who chips away at the pieces that are not me and finds their most uh, vulnerable self. And the interesting thing is I love doing comedy. Mm-hmm. I love it. So get me on stage. That's why I don't appear anxious or whatever, because I am loving it. I can't wait to do mm-hmm. the next one. And when, even if it's shitty, I, I look uh, a shitty gig or I follow someone who kills the room in a bad way before you go on. I look at that challenge like, how am I going to get them back? How am I going to do this? How am I going to make this work? And of course, there's all the anxiety. Oh, fuck. What if I can't get these people back? What if the person before me crushed the audience in a way that just turned them off to comedy and they're not going to respect me? And there's a million, there's anxieties galore or else I wouldn't be a comedian, I don't think. But I think that I love it so much that, and I'm just telling stories. I learned from the masters, just tell stories. Mm-hmm. Have a conversation with the audience. Mm-hmm. And you... One of the things I like about you and the fact that you're in Europe and all that really comes through because storytelling types of comedy in England and, like you said, Ireland and Scotland and Australia is the same way for storytellers is the audiences are more patient in Europe. They don't need a punch every 10 seconds. They they don't need that laugh every 10 seconds. But then you Americanize it to the point where you do have enough tags in your act that it does keep them 
leaning in and chuckling. So you were able to meld the the short attention attention span of Americans and uh, still be able to bring that storytelling that is done so well in Europe. So that's really cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Like the, one of the best clubs in the world, the best club in the world was in Paris. It's no longer there. Mm-hmm. It's run by an incredible guy too. And it was amazing because the Paris one, just every part of it was amazing because the people who ran it were really cared about comedy and the crowds were dying for English speaking entertainment. Mm-hmm. It was really great. Places where uh the in in I'll give you one in Dublin the upstairs at the International Bar. Mm-hmm. It's a very popular bar, the International Bar. And upstairs they have this little room that seats about 50 people comfortably and a little bar and comics from all over the world perform there. Mm-hmm. And he knew comics and comics have been doing forever. And there's no mic. There's just a little stage, and it's like a puppet theater stage, and it looks like. And then they put people, they squeeze 100 people in there. Mm-hmm. And so there's people sitting on the stage. There's people just packed in there. And if you bullshit them, they will turn off in one second, and you're done. Yeah. But if, So I learned that from working this crowd. Uh, I just, I didn't, I ended up doing very little material. Because I ended up just having a chat with them and talking about comedy. And then it just was magical because it was like a symphony with me and them. And we're playing, we're going back and forth with each other Uh and melding in a certain way that I know that I won't forget the certain shows. And the people in those audiences, they will never forget me. They might not remember my name. They might not remember how I what I look like, uh-huh. but they will go, yeah. And if they see me again, they go, "There's that guy that one night we had a connection, and it was real, and it was funny, and it was fun, uh-huh. and the beer was delicious." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the the beer is the most important part for me. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's good. I so. I've talked to a couple people that made a career out of the audience warm up gig can you tell me because doing it for say by the bell and then doing it for letterman how is the audience warm-up gig different than just like headlining a club yeah because you're the liaison to the audience mm-hmm. you're the one that keeps them involved in what's going on. especially when you're doing sitcoms like i did madigan men it was gabriel burns brilliant sitcom mm-hmm. and you what you're doing is you're the person in the audience with the who's the audience's friend who when they're taking a break you chat with them you're their buddy and you're it's a really an interesting because it's a long night it could be eight hours 12 hours mm-hmm. and you're just chatting with these people and you get to know them really well and they get to know you and you have to fill them in okay if you remember the last scene before we took the break, this happened. So you're a liaison. You're their fun buddy. You're and in the but for the Letterman show it was different. It was an 18 minute pre show, where it was five minutes of video, five minutes of the band, five minutes of me, and three minutes of Dave. Mm. And the it was it was down to the science. It was science that worked that the Johnny Carson's producers had created. Mm-hmm. They passed it along to Dave, and he passed it along to his staff. And I don't know how that happened or what went down back in the day, but it wasn't a long thing. And I didn't perform in between the commercial breaks. That was for Paul Schaefer and the CBS Orchestra. Mm -hmm. And they were one of the greatest bands in the world. So the audience is thoroughly entertained and kept up 
and a hyper mood. So my job mainly at the beginning was to take a crowd that wasn't cohesive and then bring them together. Uh And also to be able to tell Dave what the audience was like, because you learn, you can, instincts come into play. And I could tell that they were mostly tired from out of town. They were all mostly from out of town. They were very rarely were there New Yorkers in the crowd. Uh A A lot of times there were complaints from, you know, people who didn't know what they were complaining about saying, of course, the Letterman audience is this. They're all New Yorkers in New York. They think this way. Ninety eight percent of the audiences were either from other states or other countries. Uh-huh. And some of a lot of people, it was like you're on the New York City ride and here's an e-ticket to get you into the Letterman <laughs> show because that was one of the things you were going to do that day. Yeah. So not everyone even knew what the show was about there. We come from Sweden and we've we never really seen American television and we're going to go to this TV show that everyone says to go to. So your job is to bring all these different people together and then let Dave know. My job was to let Dave know uh, if they were what they were like. So it made it easier for him when he came out. Yeah, that's cool. So you got to do the talent coordinator job for that and and Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that were you looking for comedians specifically to perform on the show? Yeah, that was my job to okay. find stand-ups. There were stand-ups who that were great that just didn't want to do stand-up on the show. They just wanted to sit next to Dave. What's called panel. Uh-huh. They want to do panel because right. they feel like they're sitting with Dave, and even though they're doing their act, they're doing it in a conversation with Dave. And to, so I was trying to find the comics that Dave like the kind of style of quirkiness you know i mean there were amazing comedians that didn't get on the show there were thousands of comedians that didn't get on the show who could have easily done the show and been great at it you're you end up taking zero 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 one percent point zero 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 one percent of the people who are auditioning Uh and putting them on tv and then every year you got to you, there's other people you got to repeat and put them back on. You're his guy. He loved Gaffigan, so every year you get Jim Gaffigan, another Indiana boy. You, yeah. you know the two of them. <laughs> yeah, there was no way there was a year was going to go by without Gaffigan being on the show because not only was he funny, but he was right up Dave's alley. Yeah. So you know it wasn't an easy job, and it was a lot of work. Uh-huh. It's a lot of work, but I loved it. I loved the fact that I was able to help comics because part of my job was not only just putting people on television but also being there for people who wanted to know what we're talking about now people want to know information about what it takes to be on the show and what and i never never cut anybody short i gave everybody my time my email address at times my phone number to say look you might not have been right for the show but you should try to do this show because it's great or you need to focus on this and or but never telling them what they had to do or how to do it. It was a conversation where we fellow comic who had done the Letterman show and also booked the Letterman show and worked with Letterman was able to give them straight uh, from the horse's mouth to them as opposed to comics who because so many comics had said I when they were talking about being booked on the show, you had to be this or you couldn't be a character or you couldn't do this. And I'm like, you know, who are you listening to? Yeah. Are you listening to them or me? I'm the one who books them. Yeah. And I have to get it approved by the producers and Dave and the standards and practices. And the, it wasn't as easy as it appears. And right. it actually it, it was great from my life and my career and my what I was doing, but it wasn't great for me as a comic because I was focusing more on other people's comedy as opposed to my own. Mm-hmm. And 
Yeah, it took a little bit of a shot, but I wouldn't like I, if I had the chance to re- go do it all over again. I might think twice because it, I couldn't go to England for a month. I couldn't go to Australia, which I loved. By the time you fly there, you have to fly home. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I would have, have looking back. I don't regret what happened. I just wish I would have like. Every night I was out at clubs looking at comics, working with comics, getting comics ready, uh-huh. uh, young comics calling me up and asking me advice or mentorship or this kind of thing. But I enjoyed it. I've always loved being a caretaker in some form or another. It's been the story of my life since I'm a little boy, yeah. and it will always be the story of my life. That I really recognize that in you because that's kind of me, and it's so funny. I've been with my wife for 38 years now, and she is not the caretaker. She's, okay, if you're sick or something's wrong with you, just stay away from me. And on the other side, it's if anybody is the least bit uncomfortable, I'm always trying to make them comfortable. So I, right. I, and I, you recognize that in people, and it's, I, I don't know if it's an empathetic thing or if it's just a na- natural thing that you do but that's uh i did recognize that in you so how did how did comics get on your radar to be on the show i i know that people were that was their goal okay this is what i'm doing i'm trying to get on the show but did you have comics that maybe got on your radar um through different channels that you said you were perfect for the show many different ways the best way was other comics who recommended comics to me mm-hmm. But that was the best way. Of course, I had to see them and decide whatever. When comics who had done the show, who knew the idea, because a lot of people said, well, I'm great and I'm not on the show. Yes, you're great. In fact, you're probably greater than this person who's on the show this week, but this person fills the uh, quirky style that Dave likes and you're not that kind of comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, what happened was mostly, like I said, other comics would, would recommend them. But every club I went to, and I was working stand-up full-time, at, during that whole era. Uh-huh. So we work Monday through Thursday at Letterman, and I have I go Friday and Saturday to Indianapolis or Friday and Saturday to San Francisco, or if we had a week off, I'd do a 10-day a jag in this other cities or whatever. So I would ask the club on the Sunday to fill up a lineup, give me 10 of your best locals. Uh-huh. And there were comic comedy clubs I trusted. There people people who ran the comedy clubs in Minneapolis and in Denver and in and in Austin and Boston and there are certain cities where I knew the people running the clubs and they really cared about the comedy, the comedians and the scene. Mm-hmm. And I'd go to those people because they were smart and I could see that they've turned their community into an incredible place for comedy. And so I'd have them pick 10 or 12 of their locals and I'd have them put them on and I'd see them live Mm -hmm. and I'd take notes and I'd meet with all the comedians after the show if they wanted. And uh, because that's what I wanted. I want, I didn't want to, I would audition for Letterman or other shows and didn't get it. And I didn't know why I didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wanted to be the person I wanted. I wanted to be the booker that I wanted to, Mm -hmm. who would come up and say, look, Eddie, Look, you're not right for this. This is not the show for you. Or the show is right for you, but you need to do this. This joke doesn't work, whatever. So I try to be that. And I realized that was a mistake in a way because people didn't really want to hear that. They wanted to hear you got the show. Yeah. So if I didn't say you got the show, they didn't care if I was giving them, helping them with. I never said this is what you had to do or how how to do it. 
but they didn't want to hear anything, but you got the show. Huh. And sometimes people are like, yeah, he's, who does he think he is? Or that kind of thing. It's, I'm the booker who, who's a comedian who cares about comedians. That's yeah. who I am. And I'm offering you something that you probably wouldn't get because most people would just leave after the show and you wouldn't know why you didn't get the show. Uh-huh. So Now, I've heard from other comics that have done Letterman or Carson that they're – Every time they thought that their five minutes was 100% ready, it was never 100% ready. That's you always had to massage it a little bit. Not always. Like Larry Miller, one of the greatest comics mm. of all time. Yeah. Him and I would work on his set, and we'd go back and forth, and we were friends, and we respected each other's ideas of comedy, and we'd massage the set together because he, he we loved the process, uh-huh. and we made the set tighter and better and sharper, and it was great. No, very rarely did um, we keep, we worked on it a little bit. I would say, okay, here's a joke, and Letterman doesn't want to hear political stuff, or he doesn't want to hear a Nazi joke, or mm-hmm. he doesn't want to, I don't know, I'm making this up, examples. Mm-hmm. And, and if someone did one, I'd say, you know what, Letterman, that's not the joke he'd want in the set. Mm-hmm. So let's pick the other, four, let's pick four and a half minutes that, that you love and that uh, he will love. Mm-hmm. And that's how we did it. But and most of those people got on television and a lot of people who deserve to get on the TV show didn't get on it yet, because when you have three, four thousand people and you only have 12 spots Uh or 15, you literally can't fit them all into those days. when When I was booking Letterman, it started in 2001 and it lasted to 2012. Mm -hmm. And during that time. It wasn't like the old days with Johnny Carson, where he was the only show that everyone was watching. Yeah. At the time, you could watch Conan, or I don't think, no, Conan was later. You watch Leno, you can watch Jon Stewart, you can watch a million shows that mm-hmm. were on at the exact same time. And so it wasn't like the old days where you'd kill on Letterman and then boom, you'd be a big star the next day. Mm-hmm. That happened, but it happened very rarely mm-hmm. because of the of cable and people, less and less people watching late night television especially since you can record everything and you you could watch it later yeah uh, yeah. kind of stuff so i think that there was there were a few comedians very i don't remember anyone really doing poorly i remember people will forget a joke or people would be nervous and screw up a line or whatever but mostly people did really well and a couple of people who i thought would be really famous and weren't famous kind of shocked Mm-hmm. Famous is a whole different hour conversation. Yeah, it is. Being famous, and there are many people who aren't famous who are incredibly talented. Yeah. You it's know, a different skill that, set. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you can make yourself famous, and you don't have to have the, the chops to go along with it. But uh-huh. You can be really famous, and that's good for them. I don't yeah. root against that, those people. So you've got to see how comedy has, uh, it, it changed quite a bit from Carson to Letterman. And comedy didn't, comedy didn't change. It was the way the audiences could see comedy. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And then we have today. What are you seeing today that is making you happy about the comedy scene? And what do you wish uh, would go back to the old ways? It's hard to say. I'm not, I like to see anything that's new and up and coming and mm-hmm. changing. And, but I always like to go back to the beginning. What's funny and 
it does. It's just comedy will always be a gift that you can give to people and give to yourself. Uh-huh. And I never want to see that change to be something that's used as a weapon or comedy to be used to disrespect it. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff I don't want to see. The pandemic took me out of, you know, comedy for a long time. Mm-hmm. I remember, I think I went 149 days in between shows and I don't know how many, that was pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. And I love it. So, I love it so much. We're talking about it now for over an hour and, I just left a conversation and had lunch with a friend of mine. We were talking about comedy for a half hour. And it's just, it's, I, I love comedy. I love the, I love live stand up comedy with a live audience. I love an intimate crowd. I love a big theater. Mm-hmm. It's different ways to work both of those kind of venues. And, but the bottom line, it comes down to the art of comedy mm-hmm. and to give it the respect and the love that it deserves. And it'll give it to you. It'll give it right back to you. I I know you had to have been there when Emo Phillips was on Dave's show. Is he not just the the coolest guy in the world? He's a genius. <laughs> I fought to get him back on TV. It had been 17 years since he was on the show, uh-huh. and I was like, oh my god, why isn't he on the show? And I put him on, and I I was I was lucky enough to know him years before uh, uh-huh. the letter, and he's just a brilliant man. He's yeah. a brilliant human being. And a great writer and a great comedian and very caring and very loving. And uh, yeah, I was able to work with him. And I, I still, I saw him two and a half years ago, maybe, because I always think every one and a half years, we didn't have any comedy. And then the, the year before I was at the Boston Comedy Festival and uh-huh. he was there. And it was just so good. It was, it's great to see these people. Dana Gould was there and Mm-hmm. Tony V and all these old friends I hadn't seen in ages were at this Boston Comedy Festival and it was just good and Emo was one of them and it just was, he's so funny. Yeah. I remember one time he was with Judy Tenuta and she I got hired to open the show before her Showtime special uh-huh. to get the crowd going do 20 30 minutes uh-huh. and, and so when I got there he was so excited he met me at the door and he goes, follow me. And he turns around and starts walking. And I noticed he has this big fuzzball on the back of his jacket. Like he, and I said, I said, hey, Emo, you got a fuzzball on the back of your jacket. He goes, I know. Follow me. Follow me. <laughs> I don't think he knew. I just thought he was, he's just, that's his mind uh-huh. working. And he's, <laughs> he's, it's, he's one of the, there's a lot of genius people out there whose mind work different than most of the rest of us. And uh-huh. he really is, I just, think the world of him well he's he's such a sweetheart so i did a a short twitter campaign to try to get him to do an interview with me and Mm -hmm. he had he had a bad experience on a podcast and he took the time to send me a message that he was very honored that i would want to have him on the podcast but the the podcasts are just such a negative thing for him because of that bad experience that he just can't do a podcast. And then he said, I hope you don't hate me and all that kind of stuff. And we went back and forth a little bit. I said, I could never hate you. You're one of my favorites. And, right. and he, he's like, Oh, I'm so glad he says, I'm, I'm sorry. He says, maybe someday I'll feel like doing a podcast again, but no, I just can't do it. But he, it was so nice that he took the time just to say, I know you're going through all this effort, but I just can't do it. And uh, right. well, yeah. at least he didn't just blow you off. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool. So one of the things I like to ask everybody is what, what do you know about stand up comedy now that you wish you would have known when you first started? 
there's a line that I've been using a lot lately based on some podcast I did in Finland. I wasn't in Finland. I was here and uh-huh. I, was, I was over there. And the name of the podcast was We're Not Here to Please You. Uh-huh. And I follow that credo now. I'm not here to please you thing. And it's not harsh because I do want audience to be pleased. Mm-hmm. I want them to have the time of their lives. I want them to laugh, forget about things, open up their mind, maybe think about things. But it's not for everybody. Not every comedian is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Not everyone loves George Carlin. Not everyone loves the Beatles. What can you do? And so I do what I've learned to do what I love. And I find that more alluring when I watch the great comedians. They're not looking to, they're not, Bill Hicks told me, he said, when we hang out together, you're smart and you're fun. And when you go on stage, you do this love me dance. And why it was kind of like, it really knocked me for a loop. Uh And I was like, yeah, I I guess he, what he's saying is stop kissing the audience's ass Uh and trying to get laughs as currency based on shallow surface material when you can go deeper and talk about real things in life and how you feel, what makes you laugh, what pisses you off, what do you find ironic. And so it's always more alluring, like when you want to date someone or you watch someone in a movie. And when they're confident and they're acting like they don't need you, that's mm-hmm. usually much more alluring. It's more, oh, now I really want that. Like, mm-hmm. I learned that when I started auditioning for stuff, I would be like, I'm going to go in there. Look, I don't need you guys. Mm-hmm. You, If you like what I do, great. If not, someone else will. Mm-hmm. And I'd get more, I'd pass more auditions that way because it was much more alluring than love me, love me, desperate. Yeah. yeah. I took a lot of my jokes that used to have question marks at the beginning and would get rid of them. Instead of going, why does this happen? I go, I've often wondered. So I come from a position of knowing as opposed to a position of needing the audience's help, needing the audience to love me, needing them to be my friend. Mm -hmm. I I just needed them to accept me for who I am and how I think. So that's the things that I've learned in the last five to six years, really learned and became stronger from it by not going, hey, how many people out there are married? Unless I wanted to spend a half hour with the audience and talk to different audience members or 10, 12 minutes and say, so tell me about your marriage. Mm-hmm. Instead, I'm going, a lot of people say that marriage is, is tough. I think about it and here's my opinion, mm-hmm. but I'm not out there going, please ha- answer this question so that I can feel comfortable with you guys. And it's, it, there's a, a sense of desperation in comedy that's not alluring. Mm-hmm. And I find... That the thing I learned later on is like someone said to me, I didn't like what Dave Chappelle said. I go, he's not here to please you. Yeah. He tells his truth. He gives his perspective and you might be grossed out by it. You might not like it. You might love it and not like a little bit of it, whatever. That's fine. You can have all those. Good luck. Take them with you. And, but he's not here to please you. He's here to, to share his truths. And the nice thing is there's enough comedians now. There is a comedian for you if he doesn't please you. So right. d- yeah. just go out and find them. <laughs> yeah. And there are a lot of comedians who will go to please the audience and audiences want that. Yeah. There's a lot of people who just want safe surface stuff because they can't handle the truth. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, they don't want to. Yeah, and you know what? There's different moods, too. Sometimes I really want to go see a comedian that is very thought-provoking and is going to try to change my mind on something. And sometimes I just want to see somebody, like, break an egg on their face. Just You just want to see a pratfall or something like that just because you just want to have a totally surface laugh experience and yeah, yeah the and, three stooges yeah. uh, you just want to laugh and you want to oh, saw a laurel and hardy thing the other day it made me laugh and then i watched the show of shows and that made me laugh yeah. and they're all different kinds of comedy and uh, yeah and i don't tend to only like i whatever makes me laugh is funny uh-huh. and i say that to people they go this comic uh, i don't find funny but some people do and to those people that comedian's funny Mm -hmm. if you don't like that comedian next yeah yeah you know it's go to somebody else it's really easy yeah i come out for a night of laughter and i don't want i want to forget all my problems and all this kind of stuff then don't go watch Chappelle or don't watch uh, a a comic who's going to provoke your your thinking yeah for sure so if somebody you talked a little bit about the comedy coaching. So if you were to work with an individual or group of people can, and I'm keeping you a little long, is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. Okay. Well, I'll wrap it up pretty quick here, but if somebody, if you were, if you're working with people, what types of things do you try to bring out to get them to the funny faster? I try to get them to get rid of the things that are not them. Okay. To be their most, their most authentic self. Mm-hmm. People say, look, fine, trying to find my voice. Well, that's one of the lines that everyone says, I'm trying to find my voice. You've always had that voice, Dorothy. Uh-huh. You, know, <laughs> you just have to click your heels. And yeah. it's it really is. Everyone has that voice. And that voice is them. Uh-huh. The hard part is finding that voice and have, being brave enough to find that voice. Uh-huh. But it's not something that's going to, you're going to, it's you're going to open a curtain and there's going to be your voice. It's there. It's yeah. deep down within. And it's how much you fear using your voice because advertising religion politics parents they spend a lot of your life shitting on your beliefs and your ideas and you and and i had great parents and i had some great and decent religious experiences but i watched advertising it was interesting i watched the history of sesame street they Uh it's on tv right now it's really brilliant and what was happening was is all the kids shows of that era were using commercial technique commercial tools, advertising executive techniques to get to sell stuff to children. So every cartoon and every, not every, but most cartoons and most, they were saying how children three to five years old were walking around singing beer commercial ads because Mm. that's how commercials work on television. They're, they're, you can't blame them. They're trying to sell shit Mm -hmm. and they don't know how to sell shit that's good by just saying it's good. They have to lure you in with a commer- with a fun song or a, a beautiful actor or actress. And yeah. so they were now taking that same theory and teaching kids the alphabet. So mm-hmm. now the kids were singing the alphabet, singing numbers, and they were learning just so they decided to do good things and send love instead of fear and anxiety and sell. Mm-hmm. This isn't this spot. The other night I was watching the Rangers hockey game and there was a period. The third period was supposed to be commercial free. Mm-hmm. I was like, really? That? So it said this third period is commercial free brought to you by Jägermeister. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not making that up. That's, and they didn't say it was brought to you. They had a logo in the corner 
this commercial uh-huh. free is brought to you by Jägermeister. Wow. And it just so I don't remember the exact first question you said, but the point is that it's important to send positive thoughts along to help a society get better and better. And we could sell passion and compassion uh-huh. if we decided to do that. But the people in charge are not going to make enough as much money if you use fear and hate. Uh-huh. And, and, and fear really does really drive uh, – it's a very uh, powerful tool. Yeah. And, and comedy, on the other hand, I think in most cases, takes the tarpaulin off of that fear and lets everyone go, hey, wait a second. There's love out here. There's yeah. happiness out here. There's, you know, there's bullshit too. Uh-huh. But we can talk about it. Yeah, get rid of it. It's all. It's all on what you look for. Yeah, if, yeah. I'll give you an example. Just talk about politics, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or, you know, independent or uh, libertarian. There's tonight. There's going to be a million kids going to sleep without food. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what what should happen by tomorrow? We should get a million kids food. Mm-hmm. That's what politicians should do. Yeah. yeah, you know, not try to beat each other or yeah. outfox each other. And it's funny, outfox. It's <laughs> funny. I didn't even think of that. But they shouldn't try to outmaneuver each other to to win a vote or to make more money. The fact is that you're you have the ability to do amazing things. As a, you, your job, you failed your job as a politician if a kid goes to bed hungry tonight. Mm-hmm. You have failed your job, and you better make a, you better fix it tomorrow, uh-huh. because that's your job. There's all this other stuff about getting the guy from West Virginia to vote for you because you're trying to get this and you're trying to get that, or the other guys. We're not going to vote for him because if he looks good, that's going to screw him up. Yeah. Meanwhile, some kid's going to bed tonight, and he didn't get to eat right. because you spend the day you spend the day. F- doing the worst things. Yes. Okay, now there are questions coming in. Are these from your Yeah, people? so yeah, so I saw the one is the art of true comedy dead. Not at all. It's always there. That's the one thing that will always be there. The art of true comedy. Uh-huh. The wealthy like- Hollywood actors should be out walking the streets of LA feeding the poor, not just the politicians. Yeah, of course. Yeah. But but the job of a politician is to run their communities. Yeah, and the job of a wealthy Hollywood actor, uh, although they should definitely be out there helping the poor, and some of them do, and good for them. Yeah, and um, more people who have a lot of billions of dollars. One of the things that people think is that every Hollywood actor is wealthy, and most are not. Mm-hmm. And like in baseball, it's a lot of people are making forty million dollars and twenty-three yeah. million dollars, and a lot of people are not making that money. Right. And it's only six hundred of them playing baseball. But a lot of these baseball players will take their money and help the community. Yeah. And the funny, the, the, the funny thing is, and I see this both in comedians and musicians, as far as community-minded and giving people, I think musicians and, and artists in general are the most giving. And by golly, they take care of their own. They, if, if somebody is, when I was in South Bend, if somebody was short, they didn't have enough money to get gas to go home or something like that. They took care of each other. And yeah. Tom Dreesen, every freaking year, he, him and Tiffany Haddish are at the comedy store feeding 
feeding the uh, um, homeless and doing a show for them. And yeah, it was at the, I think it was Laugh Factory that they were doing it. Is, is that, it, it is, yeah, it's, yeah, it's Laugh Factory. But it, that's the way it is. My brother works in the film industry, and he's behind the camera doing the lights and stuff, and he spends every Thanksgiving feeding the poor and doing that. I work mm-hmm. for the Roberto Clemente Foundation for the underprivileged kids of Puerto Rico, and also the Dominican kids with the Big Poppy Foundation. And I mm-hmm. work with you diabetes and raise money for many causes. And comedians do that because we're, we're, we have the ability to be able to do that. But a job of a politician is to represent the people and take care of their people. Mm-hmm. And we all should take care of the people. A friend of mine once said something about politics. It's, we don't need a House of Representatives anymore. They needed a House of Representatives when there wasn't computers and ways for somebody who lived in you know St. Louis and you had to send your person to Washington because otherwise you wouldn't hear what's going on. Yeah. But now if you can talk to the people in St. Louis, they don't have to come to, to D.C. Yeah. They don't have to have – we don't need those representatives. We need, we need representatives to do the job of taking care of their constituency. Yeah, yeah. Instead of representatives, we need project managers that can actually get shit done. Yeah. Right, <laughs> or great ec- economic advisors who yeah. really are great. Yeah. And it's not about Democrat or Republican or – any of that kind of stuff, because yeah. that ruins yeah, everything. For sure. Yeah. yeah, if we wait for politicians to help the poor, they will all starve. Yeah. That's what's happening tonight. Tonight, there will be people who starve. Some will starve to death, and their children. And it's and they're not trying to get morose. I'm just saying it, it all relates to life, and it all relates into getting the deep truths out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what comedians do. And they do it in a in a way that you can laugh about it and on the drive home you're actually thinking about it and how you can be a better person so that's it's that that's the best that's the best things that comedians do is is actually they can change minds and they can put you down a different path just by putting an idea forth and you laughing at it so that's great yeah Yeah. so if you laugh you have if you've made someone laugh you've done something incredible for that day yeah yeah even if you make yourself laugh yeah yeah. So, um, Eddie, how can folks find you and see where you're going to be next? Okay. I have eddiebrill.com. I recently redid the website, but haven't the only, I haven't really kept up there with the dates, but you can always write me there. Mm-hmm. But I'm on Twitter at Eddie underscore Brill. Okay. Eddie underscore Brill on Twitter. I'm at Eddie Comic at Instagram. And I'm on Facebook. I put a lot of my uh, stories that I've written about about the industry. I've written them. They're on Facebook. I don't have a lot of room for new friends, but I do have a ton of other. Like you can go on there and follow me. Mm-hmm. And there's there's plenty of room for that to come up there. Someone said nice chat and Merry Christmas to you too. Yeah, thank That's you. Good. Thank you, backyard politics. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's very nice. Yeah, I, I didn't expect anybody to watch this. I didn't plug it or anything. So yeah, that's great. Okay. There's, there's, well, there's a few people. Got a couple watching. of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and great. Appreciate the hearing what they have to say. Yeah, I tell you what, uh, you were super nice about me approaching you to do the podcast. You got back with me the same day, and I really appreciate it because Emo uh, Phillips told me not to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll tweet at him and say, "Yay, you know what Eddie did the show." <laughs> Yeah, but no, you know what it is that when people ask me, I get asked a lot, and uh-huh. I understand that there's millions of podcasts. I have a few of them. I have three of them, actually, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and they're, I am proud of them. There's one called The Break with Eddie Brill. Uh-huh. I did them a few years ago. It was 11 comics. It was Stephen Wright, Colin Quinn, Susie Essman, Caroline Ray, 
on and on. Jim Gaffigan, there's 11 of them, how they started as kids. What was their house like as kids? Who was the funny people? It's called The Break with Eddie Bros. 11 of those. There's 25 video podcasts of me called OG Talk NYC, OG The Organic Grill in New York City. We interview Artie Lang and Colin Quinn and then... The new mayor of New York, Eric Abrams, and and Judy Gold, and the CBS anchor person, and people from metal bands, and, and uh-huh. it's a nice mixture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So there's, I have a few different things. So what I was saying was, it's very important that we keep each other relevant, and we talk about comedy, and we talk about stuff, and whatever it is. So whenever someone writes to me, I try to write them right back, so I don't get flooded with emails, yeah. you know, and forget who's who. And so that's why I wrote you right back. And I'm glad we pulled this off. Yeah, you're very gracious. I, re- I really appreciate it. And we learned a lot this hour. So I am uh, uh, going to listen to this one back and take notes because uh, there was some good stuff there. Yeah, get Stephen right on the show. He's a legend. Yeah. Yeah, I, interviewed him. I went to college with Stephen. We're uh-huh. still great friends. And he's amazing. And put, I did put three a word, interviews. Put a word in for me, bud. All right, I will. <laughs> Stephen's an amazing human being. <laughs> He he really is. And, and one of my favorite interviews with him is Bob Zaney did a podcast for a while, and they I remember were they were sitting in a restaurant, I think, and, and um, Zan, yeah, and Zan was Zan was with him, and it was just such an outrageous conversation, so funny. And I know that Stephen was he just thought Zan was the prettiest woman he'd seen in in forever, so th- that was going on. But that that was just such a funny interview. Yeah, I was with. Uh them earlier in the day and oh they okay oh they were heading out they just came back and they said oh we just interviewed steven i went oh great because so it was like it was a group of all good friends together and yeah it's pretty good i still i don't i speak to zan still i speak to steven bob i haven't spoken to a while but his amazing wife erin and i yeah. are friends for a million years and so we all know each other we yeah. all look out for each other yeah, you got to. I I learned really quick. I got to be nice to everybody because uh, everybody <laughs> knows everybody. <laughs> it's very true. Eddie, thanks so much for being on the show. This was really good, and uh, I just wish you the best. I, I you're, you're a really kind soul, and I, I we need more. So it's great to well, have you. I appreciate that very much. It was very good to say. I had a good time. Happy holiday, Bucky Goldstein. <laughs> Fantastic joke, Mister Backward Poli- yeah. Backyard. <laughs> politics yeah yeah i'm looking for a jewish cowboy yeah oh so what's your name i'm bucky goldstein he's amazing but thank you it was so nice to meet you and we'll talk again soon okay thank thanks a lot eddie